Welcome to the New Age Sage podcast. Today's guest is Aaron Abke. He is a YouTuber and content creator focused on heart-based consciousness, spiritual intelligence, self-mastery, kundalini awakenings. And as we get into this episode, ETs, this episode is probably one of the most entertaining ones I've done so far. I loved it and I hope you do too. Please leave us a review. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy. Aaron, I'm going to begin with this topic. Um, researching your content, you seem beautifully hopeful that humanity is winning, the light's winning, this current war is a heavy word, but fight or experience. What makes you convinced or certain that the light or humanity is winning at the moment? Yeah, I see it more like just an entanglement or something of positive, negative energies. Um, to get to your question, what makes me confident that the light will win is because the light always wins in the end. Uh, just kind of the nature of the metaphysics of light and dark is that light doesn't have to do a lot to expel darkness. But if you're in a very, very dark room with just one little match, you know, it may look very dark, but as soon as the light starts to awaken in humanity, in the heart of humanity, just a couple of match flames in a dark room can bring a lot of illumination, right? So to me, it doesn't take a lot. And most people may have a more pessimistic perspective on what's happening in the world these days. And I, I get that for sure. But I can't help but see these positive perspectives because when you look at the timeline of the way that things are progressing, in our current like experience of it, it feels slow. It's like, come on, when are we going to wake up? But when you look at the evolution that's happened in just the last like 30 years or 50 years, like we've made an unbelievable amount of progress in our awakening in just that time frame and 30 to 50 years on the cosmic scheme is nothing it's the blink of an eye and so i think like where are we going to be 30 years from now you know we saw this incredible awakening happen in these last two to four years since covid St extrapolate that 10 more years 20 more years you know i'm very very positive and optimistic about our future but that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of shadow work to do mm -hmm. in the meantime, you know. What does that collective shadow work look like? I think if you, we are the universe in a way. So if, if as an individual, I had to fully feel and process the depravity and intenseness of my shadow for years before I could, you know, alchemize it into light and purpose and find it, find the silver lining in it. So what's the process like, of like that for humanity? Is it similar? Does the collective shadow have to rise in a way for us to, to access the light? Like what is that collective? How can we do that as a collective and using the increased level of shadow to, to feed the light? Mm -hmm. Well, everything that happens on the collective level mirrors inner processes happening at the individual level as within, so without, as above, so below. And so if you understand how shadow work happens at the individual level, then you understand exactly how it happens on the collective level. But there's, there's some differences, right, in the sense of the way that it's going to manifest uh, will look different than it manifests on the individual level because we're talking about billions of people going through this process versus one individual person. So there's so much nuance in the universe and, and so much complexity, and yet there's a sameness to everything. You know, it's like the fractal nature of the universe is that it's always the same archetypal thing happening at different levels of creation at bigger and bigger or smaller and smaller scales, so to speak. So like looking at individual shadow work, <clears throat> it's not a super complex process, right? It just requires you to be willing to meet those, those emotions, those traumas, that pain that you've been trying to avoid for so long or that you're afraid of feeling. 
And it requires you to first be able to accept that and sit with it and feel it without trying to run away from it or fight it. And then it requires you to bring in a positive perspective or a more illuminated perspective of truth, of the truth of who you are. And then by the contrast of bringing in that higher truth, the negative energy that we call the shadow is depolarized by that light and the negative becomes the positive. So we're never, we're never getting rid of anything, right? We're just sort of alchemizing or transmuting darkness into light as one would lead into gold. And so no part of us ever is lost, right? Even the parts of us that hurt, we're not, we're not shaving those parts off of us when we do shadow work, we're integrating them. And the things that cause us pain become the things that bring us wisdom. So then zoom that out to the collective scale. That's all that humanity as a whole needs to do. We have to be willing to stop hating the things of things like child trafficking, financial collusion and corruption, war. As long as we have this fighting, hating energy towards those things, then we're not taking responsibility for them, right? Because at the end of the day, the only reason that global child trafficking rings are able to operate on this planet and massive, greedy multinational corporations can buy up everything and own everything and corrupt legal systems can take over lawful systems is because we ultimately are allowing it and co-creating it in what we acquiesce to, the fact that we're not empowered enough to stand up for ourselves at certain times, the fact that we're not empowered enough to stand up for the truth and speak the truth to power. All these things make us willing participants in that corruption. And so until we can look at these things and say, all right, we have to some degree co-created these dark realities. And so we need to forgive ourselves for that. We need to forgive those who perpetuate these abuses on humanity. And then we can find actually aligned, positive, effective solutions to eliminating these corruptions on our planet. As long as we're hating them, you know, what you fight, you strengthen is the classic phrase. A, a negative cannot get rid of a negative, right? If, if war, abuse, child trafficking is a negative, we will never get rid of it by hating it because a, a negative increases a negative. We must bring a positive energy to it. And that's the Christ consciousness of forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. They don't know who they are. They don't know that they're one with God. They don't know that they're one with one another. And so, of course, they do these insane things. It's up to us to bring that light to be able to show these people what higher truth is available. And if we can't demonstrate love, if we can't demonstrate higher truth, why should we expect people like this to do it themselves? Yeah, along with what you said, there's this ignorance of what's actually going on. That's the biggest shadow, I think. Is this like um, the average person, if you tell them, who's, you know, maybe an NPC of the simulation, they just watch the mainstream media and they just believe what they say. If you tell them, hey, those in power are actively involved in child trafficking, and human sacrifice, all, all the things you, you could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. they're immediately shutting it down. They're like, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. So it's like this, just like um, individuals who are traumatized and they're not aware of it, you tell them, hey, you have this wounding. What are you talking about? No way I have that, right? They're denying their own, yeah. you know, psychopathy, narcissism, you name it. They're denying their own truth. So it's like, one thing that has to happen is people have to start accepting the truth. Like you have to realize there is a possibility this could be real, right? This like collective gaslighting of like, there's, you're gaslighting yourself, like this cannot even be true. When we can't accept that truth, we can't go anywhere, mm-hmm. really. Well said. It's, there has to be a curiosity in you. If you're going to ever see your, your shadows and begin healing them, there has to be a constant, ongoing, open curiosity. And when someone says, no way that's true, what it tells me is you're not curious, I don't want to look at that is what that really says, 
Because what's the harm in being open to that possibility? If it's not true, you'll find out. Like the truth can't be hidden. The truth always reveals itself in the end. So we should be uh, very eager to investigate any possible distortion that may be there. And so, yeah, it's, it's another mirroring of the collective level versus the individual level. It's the same thing that happens when, let's say, you're with a friend or your partner and you're noticing a pattern in them that they can't see. And so you maybe try to reflect that in subtle ways for a while. They're not picking up your cues. And so at a certain point, you feel called to say, hey, I, I want to reflect something to you. I noticed that X, Y, Z, da, 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 da. And this pattern happens where you respond like this. And they say, no, no, I don't. That's them saying, I don't want to look at that. I'm not interested in looking at that. Because if they were interested in it, they'd be curious to say, well, tell me more. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't notice that I was doing that. Thank you for showing me that. That's an open-hearted approach to looking at your shadows. And that's a defenseless approach where you cannot lose. Because again, if it's not there, you'll also see that. Truth will reveal that to you. But if it is there, you will see it. And that's how you heal it. And so collectively, because people are doing this on the individual level, of course, they're going to do it on the collective level. Did you know that all of our presidents, politicians, media executives, they're all involved in these child trafficking rings? Oh, that's a conspiracy. (laughs) AKA, I don't want to acknowledge that. That's too dark for me right now. And that's okay. It's too painful for me to accept that. It's, if that's true, it's, it's a reality I don't want to live in and that's too painful. And so I, we have to be okay with someone being there trying to force and ramrod somebody into accepting a dark truth is not loving, you know, but at the same time, we have to plant seeds, I think, because Jesus said this, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who goes out to sow seeds amongst his field. Some seed falls on the rocky soil and produces no fruit. Other seed falls among the fertile soil and produces a great harvest. So it's not up to the farmer where the seed falls. That's up to the universe, right? The universe decides where the soil is fertile or not. But I'm, as part of the universe, obliged to be the seed scatterer. And so I think it's it's helpful to ask people those kinds of leading questions when the time and place is appropriate. We don't want to go around like constantly trying to, you know, red pill people or something. But um, it, but it's not up to you if they're willing to accept it or not, and that's one thing that people have trouble with. Yeah, you previously mentioned that the incorrect or losing strategy is to to hate the evil and and to be angry and send the energy towards the evil. How can you actually not feel that way towards the evil, right? I'm assuming you feel that way because you understand the spiritual role of darkness in this mm-hmm. in this game or simulation. So, for those who don't, right, you tell someone, "I uh, don't hate fucking you know." child trafficking or the, you know, negative ETs who are doing all the, all these bad things in society. How can someone not hate that or not, not feel so angry towards that? And in that answer, can you please explain yeah. the role of the darks and evil in our collective awakening? Yeah, it's a huge topic, man. And we could do a whole podcast <laughs> on this topic yeah. alone and maybe we will, but this is uh, a question I really love talking about because there's so much opportunity for freedom and liberation from fear if we can understand this like metaphysical principle. And so it has to begin with understanding that God, the source, the one infinite creator, whatever you want to label it is undivided. It's single, it's indivisible. It doesn't have polarity, but that also presents a problem, so to speak for the source, because that means it has no possible way to get outside of itself and then look at itself to understand what it is, right? So that's the kind of famous, you know, Genesis 1-1 verse. 
of uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, uh, the big bang, perhaps God asks this question, who am I? And then the universe is born. And so because God can't get outside of itself, it has to create a simulation, right? Or a, a medium through which it can look at itself in a sense. And it does that through what we call polarity, light and dark. And so because the creator is essentially perfect love, absolute unity, non-separation, non-duality, then what we might call, what I like to call the positive polarity is that polarity which represents all of the creator's essential nature, what the creator really, really is like in its true nature. But because polarity means exact opposites or mirrors, then the negative polarity must then exist to represent everything that the creator is not in its true nature. So you have two polarities, one that is the essential nature of God and one that is the exact opposite of the nature of God. And we call these good and evil as well. So here's where the freedom comes is realizing that two powers do not exist. There's only one power in the universe, which is God's power. And in a sense, the negative polarity or evil is borrowing the God power temporarily to create abuse and suffering and war and strife and all the things that evil does, but it's not an independent power apart from God's power, meaning there isn't God and the devil, two separate distinct powers that are duking it out with each other to see who's going to win the universe. That's man's imagination of what it is. Non-duality is very difficult for the mind to grasp, rightly so, because the mind is dualistic, but the truth is that There is only one power, which is God's power, and God's essential nature is good. God's essential nature is love. And so the question has to be asked, then how does the negative polarity arise? How does evil arise? And the answer is only by the veiling, the forgetting of God's nature. And this is something the law of one taught me that just blew my mind and expanded my consciousness so much about how I see the universe. And that is that every planet is at a certain level of consciousness. Every species is at a certain level of consciousness and always evolving. But this planet we're on right now, the law of one calls it the third density of consciousness of which there are seven total densities. And these seven densities refer to the seven chakras or the seven energy centers. And so they're like the seven basic stages of consciousness's evolution. And so the third density correlates to the third chakra, of course, the solar plexus, which is kind of classically known as the ego chakra. And that's the chakra where self-awareness, self-conceptualization is born, where the mind can kind of turn back upon itself and think about itself as a separate individual character. And this is what causes the separation, the tribalism, the warfare, the division that we see on our planet is that I'm separate from you because I'm aware of myself. So I'm over here, you're over there, and you might be a threat to me. You might be my enemy who's trying to take what I want in this world. So I have to fight against you and compete against you. So that's classic third density consciousness. But eventually consciousness evolves enough to arise into the fourth energy center, the fourth chakra called the heart chakra. And that is the fourth density of consciousness in the universe, which is where now consciousness is able to perceive beyond that level and understand the nature of oneness, which is that, yeah, you're over there, I'm over here, everyone's in a unique form, but we're all the same energy. 
We're all the same substance. We all come from the same source. We all derive our being from the same source, which makes us one inherently. And that is what we call love. It's the the recognition of oneness, the recognition of shared being. So humanity is at this place of trying to get into that level of consciousness, trying to transcend our separateness and realize our unity. And so what happens to create evil is that the law of one says third density planets have a unique condition, which is called the veil of forgetting. And the veil of forgetting means that every soul who incarnates on a third density planet has to go through this veil where you completely lose all memory of your past lives, the universal purpose of why you're here. You don't, you don't take anything with you into a third density life. You appear like Adam and Eve naked in the garden, right? You have no memory. And so that's what causes or allows for the negative polarity of consciousness to be born is that man forgets our oneness, our source, our past lives, our history, and under that ignorance begins fighting each other and competing against each other. And that competition creates evil, right? And so to transcend the veil of forgetting is the process of the spiritual path that we're all on, to remember who we are, to remember that our essential nature is one, one with God, one with one another. This was Jesus's essential message, was oneness with the Father. And after the third density, evil becomes essentially a non-factor. It doesn't exist any longer. So it really only exists in the third density of consciousness. And I think that's very interesting to consider because it means that we're kind of in an almost like in an eggshell waiting to be born into the universe. And the law of one says that you can't break out of that eggshell until you choose which polarity you want to graduate into. Do you want to be a positively polarized soul? Then you have to choose the path of love. Do you want to be a negatively polarized soul? Then you have to choose the path of power and separation. And so the law of one teaches that souls can also graduate out of third density to the negative polarity and continue for a while on that path, but they have to, it has to be separate from the positive polarity, meaning planets that are positive only have positively polarized souls that, evol- that incarnate there. And likewise for negative. So there's only the mixing of positive and negative here on earth on third density planets like ours, because souls come to this planet to choose between those two polarities. Can you unpack how someone can evolve through the negative polarity? I think it's easy to understand the positive polarity, right? Like you're you're gradually getting closer and closer to unconditional love in yourself throughout time. But I think what people, or even I have a hard time understanding is how can you graduate through the negative polarity to come back to oneness? How does that work? Yeah, it's a fascinating subject in the law of one. So in those seven densities, when we get to the sixth density, which correlates to the sixth chakra, the third eye, uh, that's the density where you actually become the higher self uh, midway through sixth density. What happens is your soul has gained all of the positive polarization it can get in physical reality. It's done every form of service possible. It has expressed love in every way possible. And so now the soul says, how do I up the ante, so to speak, to continue evolving? And so the law of one says that what happens is your soul at that point kind of turns back in time and chooses to be a guide to all of its past incarnations to help bring its past lifetimes, the lessons it needs to grow and evolve properly and to kind of be that guidance that, that the soul needs on its journey. And that's what allows the sixth density soul to keep 
polarizing towards the seventh density, which is the crown chakra density. And that represents basically, uh, they call it the gateway density, where you've kind of got one foot in timelessness in the creator and still one foot in manifestation in physical reality. And uh, so that's, this merger is happening, right? So when the negative soul gets to sixth density, it runs into a kind of metaphysical wall where it cannot gain any more negative polarity. And so the law of one says that the negative entity will kind of beat its head against that wall for a time until it realizes I've reached the end of this path of illusion. It can't go any farther. And interestingly enough, they also, in the law of one, they, they call the negative polarity the path of that which is not. It's a path of illusion, ultimately, because the illusion is that you're separate from creation. And so that, that illusion of separateness can't progress past the beginning of sixth density. So what happens is the, the negative entity concedes to the path of light and says, okay, the light is the true path. Darkness is the false path. I will reverse polarity. And so they metaphysically reverse their polarity or their charge, kind of like a quantum particle. What happens their karma? If they're, if they, let's say they're on the last negative polarity and they've done insane levels of evil, do they just, does their karma go away? Once you accept that you're just, you want to go back to the positive? It's, it's a great question. I don't know the answer exactly, but what it seems like, uh, the entity's raw in the law of one that's teaching all of this. What it seems like raw alludes to is that they can reverse polarity immediately to sixth density positive and then continue from there, meaning they don't have to go back to third density all over again and choose the positive and then re, re, reemerge into sixth density. They go right into sixth density positive. And that's because they've already gained all of the contrast of the negative polarity. Sometimes we say that the negative polarity is the path of wisdom, uh, of light. You know, Lucifer is called the light bringer because through evil, you understand truth in a new way, in a new light. It's only by the contrast of what is false that we really understand the truth. So the negative being is extremely wise and understands the nature of the universe very well. The only difference is they've shut off the heart chakra and chosen the path of separateness. And so basically they have to turn on the heart chakra and choose the path of unity. And at that point, they don't need to go through three, four, and five densities all over again because they've already learned all of that stuff. They can just now apply it to unity rather than separation. So it's kind of interesting, but in terms of like, do they have to pay off their karmic debt? Um, I don't know exactly what the answer to that question is, but it's an interesting question because as you know, the negative polarity is very good at avoiding its karma by getting the free will of gullible people to do the work for them. Uh, we often say this in like, you know, truther circles that, um, the, the deep state, the Illuminati, whatever you want to call them, they understand this role of karma. Karma retribution. Yes. That you can't just go around abusing people. So those who don't know, it's like those called deep state, Illuminati, reptiles, whatever you want to call them, that, (laughs) that they're, that they'll basically advertise what they're doing. To get your consent. So, yes. you know, that, that's the, it sounds crazy, but if you really go down the rabbit hole, you'll see whether the World Economic Forum speeches, like they'll tell you, hey, we're doing this. Yes. Like we had your consent now. Yeah. Th- this is how the negative path controls people is that they, they learn the laws of the universe and they learn them very well. I mean, if you study like Freemasonry, you're like, these guys are tapped in, but they're just twisting everything to the darkness rather than to the light, to, the, to their advantage, right? So they're using universal laws as control mechanisms, right? So they understand karma very, very well. 
And uh, people who are not as advanced on the negative path get caught from their negative karma all the time in our, in our world, right? People that go around stealing money, laundering money, and they're not dotting their I's and crossing their T's, karmically speaking, they end up getting caught and thrown in prison. Well, the, the Bill Gates, the Klaus Schwab's, the Clintons of the world, like these extremely negatively polarized beings don't get caught and we all get frustrated. We know, we see what they're doing in the open, but they never get in trouble for it. Why? It's because they do it in a certain way to avoid the karmic retribution. And one of those ways is what you just touched on, which is subliminally telling everyone what they're doing while they're doing it to get your free will involved so that it's technically no longer infringement. You're cooperating with me Mm -hmm. through your own ignorance and delusion. Yes, but nevertheless, the universe still holds you responsible for every decision you make. So if you agree with the darkness, even though the darkness is tricky, that's your karma, right? And that's just a metaphysical law. So this is one of the reasons why waking people up to what's going on is one of the most powerful things we can do because then the the path of darkness can't keep getting humanity's free will uh, incidentally through our ignorance, right? Yeah, it's a heavy question, but I think it's important to ask because I just I always think of the people who would doubt our speaking, what they'd, what they'd ask, so just to have answers yeah, yeah. to. So it's like my mind goes to, from putting their consciousness in my mind, is that if you're someone who's experienced genuine horror, like true, true horror, let's say you're a kid in Gaza or you're, you know, we're a recipient of child trafficking and you're, you know, being abused by these elites or your family got murdered, the worst things you can imagine. How can someone like that use that, those experiences to come to the light? Like how can someone who experienced true horror and depravity use that experience to become, to be pushed towards a positive, positive ion versus the, the negative one? Yeah. Well, it ultimately comes down to your perspective of who God is. And if you think that this is the problem with Christianity, Western religion, is that it thinks that these tragedies are the punishment and wrath of God on people. (laughs) And so if you think that evil is being done by the creator or God or the intelligence of the universe is actively choosing to abuse people like this, then you're going to have a really dark picture of God and you're not going to want to go any further into understanding who God is because it's scary, right? The idea of a wrathful, angry God is terrifying. So people rightly refuse it or... or just, just such a counterintuitive notion that like, I should fear God. Yeah. Just to make any sense. It is, like is, God, God is fear. Like, what? But yeah, continue. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it goes against yeah. our natural innate intuition. And so if you think that God's doing these things, then you're going to have a dark picture of reality. But if you understand that these things are only happening because of the ignorance of who God is, and that if every person on earth was fully aware of the nature of God as love, evil would be impossible to exist on this planet. There would be no possible way to do harm to another being in that light. And when you understand that, you can have forgiveness towards these horrible atrocities that happen because you just understand it's no different than you know, an insane person in a straitjacket talking to themselves, running up to you and, and punching you or spitting on you. Like you just wouldn't have the ability to get angry. You just understand this person's totally insane. I need to distance myself, you know, and I can love them from a distance. We just learn to distance ourselves from those who are not aware of love, who are ignorant of oneness, because we know that that's the environment where evil happens. Because again, evil can only happen in the absence of God. Because God is perfect love. 
So I think if you understand that kind of principle, these kind of questions sort of answer themselves. Mm-hmm. In that, how can one be careful to not spiritually bypass their, their trauma, right? Because I've been there, right? Like I've, I wasn't aware of this stuff until maybe, a, I always knew it, but didn't, my body didn't awaken to it maybe until like middle of last year. My body understood, oh shit, like this is, this, none of this is real, you know, but it's also really real at the same time. So then when I get bad things that happen to me, I immediately go in my mind to, this is a simulation, whatever, like who, who gives a fuck? Yeah. Um, but there's still pain in my body. So how, how can, how can, maybe in your experience, because you, you have obviously mastered these, you know, esoteric truths or codes. How do you not spiritually bypass? Like how when shit must happen to you and you know all the knowledge, like are you at a point where you don't even feel pain from anymore or... or that's the first question. Like, do you even get the trauma anymore? And if you do, or if one does, and they understand this stuff, how can they not spiritually bypass and traumatize themselves deeper? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting question to ask because I think the farther we ascend into the light, we don't have a reference for how much we're ascending because we feel more and more like somebody feels who's waking up from a dream or something, where when you wake up from a dream, you don't feel like you've done some great thing. You're just trying to get your bearings in reality again and be like, okay, I'm awake. I'm here in, in present in reality now. So you don't feel like anything great has been accomplished. You're just like, I left delusion behind. Have you ever thought about like, we experience most traumatizing things in dreams. We, we don't get traumatized. Right. Because we don't think it's real. Right. You're not identified yeah. with the dream character. So it's harder and harder to answer that question because, you know, I don't experience pain or suffering on a regular basis or a daily basis. Every so often things will happen that provoke deep empathy and compassion or maybe even some sorrow, you know, when I see great suffering in the world. But it's not sorrow that's void of love or hope, if that makes sense. The sorrow I used to feel, uh, the depression I used to suffer from was completely devoid of hope. It was hopelessness itself, right? And so there's space in love to experience anger, sadness, and fear without being thrown from your center, from your truth. And so is that suffering? Not really to me. You know, maybe someone considers that suffering, but as long as there's the abiding awareness of oneness with God, of peace in the background. That's a big, big jump you made. I'm very curious if, if you could, if you could engineer it, let's say you went from, from that point where you were suffering all the time, getting reactive. Like if you could pinpoint like a couple of most important perspectives or, or realizations that got you to where you are now to be at that point, I'm assuming, of like unconditional love. Like what took you from the opposite to here now? If you could pinpoint like the exact most powerful moments or mm-hmm. beliefs that got you to where you are now. I certainly can, actually. This is um, what I enjoy teaching the most is this subject called the three beliefs of ego. Because when I was in my early 20s, I had this terrible dark night of the soul kind of period of my life where I just had crippling depression, hopelessness, loneliness. I'd left my religion. I'd gotten divorced. There was a lot of uh, traumatic things happening at once in my life. And I just became like deeply curious about this question of why do I suffer? What is really causing my suffering? Because I grew up as a Christian. I was a very devout Christian. I had a very intimate relationship with Christ and with God. It was my whole identity was was... I'm a disciple of Christ, you know? And so I I always have felt and known that the divine exists and that I am one with the divine to an extent. So when I lost my kind of fundamentalist part of my religion, I still knew that there was a source, 
but I no longer felt like I knew what that source was as I did as a Christian. It was more open to mystery for me at that point. And so I was inviting in these dark questions I had not allowed myself to think about as a Christian, which is, is God really love? Is God's will for me good? Am I in a friendly universe or a hostile universe? And I had to really sit with those questions. And for a while, those questions provoked depression because I felt like maybe I am in a lonely, hostile universe. It sure feels like that, you know? And so through that suffering, I started asking, why am I suffering? What's the cause? What's the root of this? Because deep down, some part of me believes that love is real and love is the only truth. And I want to live in that truth. But how do I get there? And the universe was apparently happy with that question or that prayer because it gave me this profound answer in the form of uh, understanding these three core beliefs of the ego. And they, they stem from our three negative emotions, which are sadness, anger, and fear. These are the only three emotions the human being suffers from. And there's many variations and flavors, right, of those three emotions. But at the root, it's just always some kind of sadness or anger or fear. And we have root, sacral, solar plexus chakras there, the three ego chakras. So I started to wonder, why do we have these three negative emotions? Why are they different? Why, does, why is anger a different kind of suffering than is depression or than is anxiety? They have different flavors, right? And I, I came to the conclusion of, well, it must be because there's a different like root belief at the core of, that's causing those emotions. So then the question was, what are these three core beliefs? And in time, it was revealed that the first belief that causes sadness, the ego's first belief, is the belief in lack. Mm -hmm. I am lacking. I am incomplete in some way. Anytime you believe you're lacking something, you, you have to feel some kind of sadness. From there, we get the second belief, which is because I'm lacking, my happiness must be outside of me somewhere. My happiness depends on external things outcomes in the world, right? So I'm going to go chase down my happiness. And that's what we call attachments, right? My happiness is out there. That's the second belief. And that's the belief that causes anger because anytime an attachment gets threatened or blocked, the ego gets angry. When the ego doesn't get what it wants, anger is the result. Yep. And then that leads to the third and final belief, which is the trickiest one to understand and to like really see, but it's potentially the most powerful if you can see it because it has the first two beliefs also attached into it. They all stack on top of each other. So if I'm lacking and I have to go get my outcomes in the world to fulfill myself, that implies what? I'm the doer of actions. I'm in control of life. I'm the one who does everything. And everyone would hear that and say, well, of course you are. Obviously, you're the doer of your own actions. Who else is doing your actions? But if we look at the metaphysical context of that as the wave and ocean analogy, would we say that it's accurate to say that a wave acts independently from the ocean? You would say, well, of course not. A wave is what the ocean is doing. And so I say, a person is what the universe is doing. A person is what the laws of karma are doing, right? So you think you're choosing all your actions. You think you know what's in your best interest, right? But you totally don't. Nobody knows what's in their own best interest. Otherwise, everybody would be supremely happy at all times. We cannot perceive our own best interest because we cannot see the karmic cosmic forces that are acting through us. We don't see the karma that's 
dictating our behaviors because we're identified with the body, with the person. So that's the hardest belief to see through is the belief that I'm in control. But that's the third belief that causes fear and anxiety and stress. Any emotion of that flavor is whenever you think you're losing control over something or you don't have control, panic, fear, stress, anxiety is the result. So by the time you're stressed out, you're already too far down the, the, the road with the ego. You've already identified with the body and believe that you're in control of the body and choosing your own actions. So you've placed this huge burden on yourself rather than having the awareness that, let's say, Buddha or Christ had, which uh, Christ said, of myself, I can do nothing. I can only do what the Father does. I can only say what the Father says. That's cosmic consciousness, right? Uh, awareness of my oneness with God, that it's only one power acting in the universe. It's the God power acting. Everything I appear to do is really what God is doing through me. And if I'm doing something evil, that's because God's allowing my karma to express through me so that I can see it, so that others can see it, so we can have this reflection to refine ourselves. So there's never something happening outside of God's will, but that's difficult to see when we're not zooming out and when we're only looking at the individual level then we see only good and evil and we grapple between them. But there is a greater plan that's carrying itself out, right? And seeing that greater cosmic plan that's acting itself through all of us is how we transcend those three beliefs. I, I, honestly, I still really struggle. My last battle in this lifetime has been just losing control. Truly, like, a, yeah. um, like psych- I've taken a lot of psychedelics, but they're tough for me because that to fully be in the space of the ascension, you have to allow that loss of control in your mind to exist. So the question for me, mostly, and I'm sure almost anyone, as you mentioned, struggles with, with this stuff. If you have a trigger of, I am no longer in control, I am suffering, what are steps to remove that suffering? So for instance, let's say you, I don't know, you ask some, someone out on a date. Mm-hmm. Um, we, all, we all struggle with <clears throat> romantic wounding probably the most. They're not answering and they're not seeming like they're into it. And then you get like, oh, you get fucked up about it. You think, how could I, how could I not have this happen? But the truth is that it just wasn't a match in the, in the cosmos. So how can someone in those situations when they're losing their shit over not having control, accept that, that they never had control in the first place? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the answer. You have to start accepting that you're not in control. You're not the force that makes the gears of life turn. You think you are, but you yourself are a gear of life that is being turned by life, right? You are a wave being waved by the ocean. So the the mantra that I like to use and that I teach in my courses for really requalifying that third belief that I'm in control is I'm not in control, I am being lived. Or I also like to say, I'm not in control, I'm in cooperation. So I can cooperate with life as gears cooperate with each other, And then that is a kind of control in a sense, because I'm joining with God's will, with the universal will of life. And uh, something A Course in Miracles says that I love so much is that your will is God's will. There isn't a separate will in the universe. There's just one will that exists and it's God's will. And if you're in any other will, you're in a dream. You're dreaming in your mind. You're making something up that's not really there in reality. So how do I enter God's will? and cooperate with God's will, where there's only perfect harmony and happiness, is surrender. I have to surrender the sense that I have a personal separate will. I want to get that girl. I want to get that guy. I want to get that job. I want to make that money. These are the things that I think will bring me happiness. But nevertheless, I've been chasing those things my whole life, 
and here I am suffering and miserable. So maybe that's not really what I want. Maybe there's something else that I want that I can't see. Maybe God knows better than I. And if I just follow God's way, God will reveal to me the true destiny of my soul. And so that's not easy to do because the ego wants what it wants. So this is a daily practice, right, of living a lifestyle of surrender. And it really just begins with the simple practice of accepting what is arising in this moment exactly as it is. That's the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? Now, this, here. Here is God's will. What's arising now is God's will. And so if what's arising now is challenging, then I know for sure that God is trying to teach me something through this moment, just like a a good test is a challenging test because a good test provokes the intelligence of the student. So God is doing that with us in every moment. Every moment is a lesson that God would have us learn, but how can you learn that lesson if you're in resistance and not accepting it? So acceptance is surrender. Everything that's happening is for my highest good, for my growth and learning and evolution, but I have to begin by just trusting that fact. And then from the, from the trust and the surrender, the lessons begin revealing themselves. You see what it is that life is bringing out of you and trying to show you, and evolution takes place very quickly. And that's how we gradually move into a state of being where we can live with happiness. We can live with peace of mind because we're no longer wrestling with the the happenings of our life anymore in the back of our mind. There's no more this voice that's constantly resisting what I'm experiencing. Instead, I've trained that voice and requalified that voice to trust what happens. And really just a little while of doing this you start to gain experiential nexus that this is true because you've seen it in real time, right? You got fired from that job and you wanted to stress about it, but you said, no, if I'm fired from this job, it's because God made it happen for my highest good. So I trust that this is where I'm supposed to go. This isn't the job for me. Thank you, Lord, for for relieving me of this job. That's not in alignment. And then you wait and you watch and slowly but surely a much better job appears in your life that feels much more aligned, better pay, all these things. And then you look back and say, wow, look at that. If I hadn't trusted that getting fired was good for me, I wouldn't have found this better job. So over time, life will prove to you that these metaphysical laws are absolutely true. And that's the only way to unravel the ego's programming is that you have to prove it wrong through direct experience, right? Hey there. I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, this is a complex philosophical question, but I, I believe in destiny. I'm sure you introduced you too. When I took, when I did DMT, I saw my, the majority of like my life and I could just zoom in and be like, okay, all this shit's happened already. Like time became vertical and I was like, right. These major events happened, right? My success came, my family came, all these things are, are happening right now. And once it happened, I had like this, this tough question I still don't know the exact answer to is to what extent do I have free will, right? Like if my destiny has already happened, I saw it, what, to what extent do I have free will? So what's your answer to that? Like what, what's the line between free will and destiny? Free will is your ability to choose to accept or resist what is. And that's really good answer in a sense as far as it goes Mm -hmm. because again the gears of reality are always turning and you can either turn with them or attempt to turn against them 
But if you attempt to turn against the gears of life, you accumulate what we call karma. Uh, karma is that metaphysical principle that balances everything because the universe is perfect balance. Like we said at the beginning, perfect balance of positive, negative energies. Quantum, the quantum universe reveals this. Everything is happening in this uh, rhythmic balanced interchange of positive, negative. And if there isn't balance, then things start to go wrong. So if you try to violate the natural law and order of the universe, the universe gives you the free will to do that actually. But what you don't get is to escape the consequences. You know, you created, you created the karmic debt by violating a natural law. And so you have to pay the karmic debt. And to that extent, free will must stop right there, right? Because nobody wants to suffer. No one's free will is to be miserable. Everyone's free will is to be happy or that's what they desire. And so from that context, you could say, well, then there is no free will because all we can want is happiness. All we can want is love and freedom because that's, again, our essential nature. That is God's essential nature. So from that context, you might even say there is no free will because God can only be what God is. You can only be what you are. But that's a little too esoteric for me, honestly. I like to stay in the vein of like what actually applies to my life. And it's my will is only applicable to accepting what's happening in reality. Because as soon as I try to dismiss or deny what's happening in reality, I've left reality. And so only negative things can happen to me from there. So like if my will is to not suffer, it has to begin with a radical acceptance of what is. And when I, when I start cooperating with the universe, really, really good things start to happen because all things exist in relationship, right? In the universe, everything's connected. Everything depends on everything else. So when I join that loving relationship, cooperative relationship with the universe, I enter into that great harmony, that great dance that's happening. And I get to enjoy the happiness of that cooperation and dance. So free will free will almost is like not even a helpful thing to, to think about in an, to an extent because it gets us too lost and hung up in the details sometimes. And really the only thing we should be concerned with is like, am I awake and aware in reality right now? And the answer to that question is, am I in acceptance of what's happening right now? And if you are, then you are, you are demonstrating your free will. You are aware of what your will is, which is to be happy There's only happiness by cooperating with life. There is no happiness to be found by fighting against life. You know, that's the negative polarity. That's the path of darkness that is an endless void. It's an endless black hole. You you can never get satisfaction on the negative polarity. And so, yeah, when you see that, the the choice makes itself, right? And so is there free will in a choice that's as obvious as that? Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I have no idea. Um, like if you see what's going to cause you pain clearly and what's going to bring you happiness, is there really even a choice anymore? No. You, know, you want to be happy. So yeah. the choice makes itself. Yeah. So if you want to call that free will, sure. Yeah. Well, then so many people, uh, well, I was confused at the, people in their program perceive the negative pleasure to be happiness. Right. right. It's like their comfortable zone of like, happened to me, right? Like I used to be, I used to think that all like um refreshing my like likes or followers when they weren't flown that I wanted to or like looking at the text of people that didn't answer me I'd be there for hours being looking at it I was like I got I realized oh shit this is this is what my ego likes to be in at, at this point yep. in time but you know to bounce off what you're saying the 
I had a guru since I was 19 and his answers used to frustrate me. He's very like to the point, simple, like ancient trained guru. Always be like, what's true? What's happening right now in reality? Mm-hmm. And be like, oh, this isn't happening. Okay, that's it. I can't tell you anything else, right? Like yep. this, this, is, this thing is true. This thing didn't happen. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like, can you accept the reality? And I always be frustrated. Isn't it more complex than that? All this stuff. It's like, no. Like you have to be in accordance with what's true. Following that line of logic, it's like, okay, if everything just, just is and we have to surrender to it, do we have do we have a way to break our destiny or break our bad karma or is it just everything that happens in this reality will happen like is there a way to defeat our programming in a way well there's there's many different areas i could go into to answer that we could talk about parallel realities okay (laughs) and, and manifestation right or we could just stay in the absolute what's absolutely true as your guru would say and I tend to be much more interested in that. Same here. I do too. It's, this help, it's helped me the most. Yeah. Yeah. But let's actually, let's, let's go there. Why are you more interested in that, in that way of, of thinking? I would say because I've been down the road of, of um, manifestation, creating my reality and trying to find happiness in that. And just like a drug, just like any other fleeting pleasure, it ultimately doesn't satisfy you because you always need the next thing. You always need the next manifestation you know, and so at a certain point, not that that's, that's bad or, or unhelpful in any way, because the law of attraction teachings are very helpful for um, people that are newer to the spiritual path. It's what invites people to the dance. It's what gets them excited to study spirituality and metaphysics. So it's, I see law of attraction teachings as very, very good. But again, but those teachings are based in the I am in control. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's just an earlier stage of spiritual development. And so I played that out myself and found that Same. Yeah. there's still an aching in me for a deeper happiness. And uh, I realize I'm banging on the mic. <laughs> there's still an aching in me for a deeper level of happiness <clears throat> that I clearly can't find here by <clears throat> that I clearly can't find here by manifesting things. So what is that aching? Where is that leading me to? And more and more, it was just this understanding of, I want to experience the tangible presence of God at all times. I want to live in the awareness of my oneness. And from there, we still create reality. We still manifest. And it's very fulfilling to manifest. But it's now you're creating your reality from this fulfillment rather than creating a reality to get to a later fulfillment. You know, once I become this or that, then I'll truly be happy. That will never, you'll never be happy even when you do become that. There'll be a new object. There'll be a new outcome on the pedestal for the ego because as you said, it's perpetuating that belief that I'm in control. So rather, when we find fulfillment in who we are now in knowing who we are, knowing our oneness with source, then we find the universe is like a playground that our heavenly father has created for us to play in. So everything we do is an expression of our father. And so it's fun to create from that state of awareness and you still create, but you create from a totally new disposition where there's nothing coming from unfulfillment or lack of fulfillment. So you're able to be patient for reality to manifest. You're not in this constant waiting game to manifest the next thing. And, you know, I did that for so long that it became a kind of suffering. Yeah, I I just got out of it. I would. I mean, I think because I thought about it, right? If if you have an intense desire and you manifest it, let's say it's a million dollars or some position or some amount of followers or something, you know, vain in that sense, fear is released whenever you don't see evidence of that happening right now, right? right? So it's like if the money isn't in your bank account right now, fear comes out, right? If mm-hmm. if 
the followers aren't there, the woman you desire isn't here. There's to some level because you had the desire, deep desire, and you're always repeating it. There's fear in your system when it's not repeating reality. So I'd always be in the system of like petrol fear of like my, what I want isn't happening right now. Yeah. Um, so that made me kind of unattracted to the whole manifestation process. Yeah. But that's what becomes the springboard to launch the spiritual adept into the next phase of their evolution, which is the inner seeking rather than the external seeking. You have to kind of exhaust that karma of, because like this is what attracts the ego to spirituality is, hey, you can create your reality, ego. You can, you can manifest whatever you want. So the ego is like, oh, this is great. I have all the power of the universe on my side. Well, this is what's going to for sure make me happy. And so you might spend five, 10 years doing nothing but studying Abraham Hicks and Neville Goddard teachings and conscious manifestation. And that will evolve your soul a lot. But at a certain point, you'll be like, all right, I've been there and done that. And there's still a longing in me for something deeper. And that's when you step from one stone to the next on that river, if you're crossing a river, you step into the next stone of um, self-discovery, self-realization that maybe what I'm longing for will not be found in anything I can manifest in the world. Maybe it will be found through a kind of internal discovery of who I am. And when that is recognized, uh, the I would say the progress, the rate of progress increases exponentially. Firstly, you're the only guest I've had to the balls to say any of this, any of this. So kudos to you. Cause most people like their the whole, if you're in a spiritual influencer in this space, like, it sells, it's like, it sells exactly. You tell them, the person, clicks. I, I can help you get in control of your own reality and make you a million dollars. So I just, from right. man to man, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> um, and, and secondly, let's lay out a, a process. Like how does actually one switch that? What does the internal path look like? How can one start going about that? Is it as simple as like once I've, I saw this post where it was like, you know, uh, once I get these things, I'll find peace. Is it just, I'll find peace and these things come? Is it as simple as that? Like, how, what is the internal process really like? Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you, as Jesus said. It's, I think it's really the, the journey from ego to heart-based consciousness is all we're talking about. Uh, third to fourth density consciousness, solar plexus to heart. In the third density, in the third chakra, when we're in ego consciousness, this is where we're living. Uh, a separate personal self who needs to get fulfillment in the world, then law of attraction is very attractive and we'll, we will continue using law of attraction teachings to get what we want. And that's in a sense leading us closer to the heart because everything you get, everything is known through contrast, right? You only know what you like through the contrast of what you don't like. So at a certain point, all the manifesting and conquering goals and things will eventually prove to you that it's futile to find fulfillment there. Yeah, you can find temporary fulfillment there, but who really wants temporary fulfillment when permanent fulfillment is available? Our soul wants that permanent fulfillment, which is love, the awareness of love's presence. Becoming love is true fulfillment. And so there's kind of like four stages from ego to heart. The first stage is when you're fully identified with ego and you have to have some willingness to begin questioning your thought system, saying, maybe this isn't the way things really are. Maybe there's a higher way of being available. And a soulmate, a person might spend 10 years of their life fighting off that question. Is there something more that I'm not seeing? Is there a deeper meaning to life? But once that question is accepted of, yes, I feel there is a deeper meaning to life. There's deeper fulfillment available in this universe. Then they move into the second phase which is like the shadow work, beginning to meet your darkness, 
to begin seeing your egoic programming and being willing to requalify it and uh, heal it and transcend it. And that work goes on for quite a while usually. And then the third level is when we start to actually get a taste for what heart-based consciousness feels like. We actually start to have glimpses of that supernal bliss that's available in the heart. And we begin living from love a little bit more. We actually feel moved by the heart. It's as if there's a deeper power acting through me now where we're just so powerfully motivated by love that when I see someone in need, I cannot stop the love from pouring out. I've got to go serve. <clears throat> so we, we're in that intermediary phase where we're one foot in the heart, one foot in ego. And we're learning to get that last foot out of ego into the heart. It's kind of the third phase. And then we have the final phase, the fourth step, which is full heart-based consciousness or fourth density consciousness. Whoops, I did it again. <laughs> fourth density consciousness where you're able to live and abide in the heart space permanently. And this is what we would call enlightenment, of course, where you, you genuinely don't experience judgments anymore. You've lost the ability to feel judgmental towards people because your spiritual intelligence is so high that you just understand everyone's just where they are. Like what a absolute waste of energy to judge people and get angry for their actions. That's where they are. It's like being mad at a kindergartner for not being able to pass an algebra test. If you got frustrated at a kindergartner for not passing an algebra test, everybody would be like, hey, you're the problem, bro. Chill. Yeah. It's just a kindergartner. I, I promise everyone listening to this that you can see everyone in the world like a child where their actions do not provoke anger in you anymore because you understand insane people do insane things. Hurting people do hurting things. Like this is just a reflection of where someone's at and nobody can behave above their current level of consciousness. How can you observe accurately without judging? There's a line in the Course, a course in Miracles I love that says, be kind always for everyone is fighting a difficult battle. So to me, like the, the greatest barometer that you're truly living from heart-based consciousness is when you're easily and immediately able to perceive the pain and the fear behind what people are saying and doing because everyone's actions are motivated by deeper underlying energies. Obviously mm -hmm. this is psychology 101. It's the subconscious, the unconscious that's actually acting through everybody. And so when you're in the heart, you have this intuitive intelligence activated, you know, in your energy field where you immediately sense when someone's hurting you immediately sense when someone's in fear. And so you're able to interact with them in a way that goes right to the core of what they're feeling. You go right to the core of the energy that's acting through them and you can speak to it. You can even begin healing it a bit without them knowing it by being the energy of the solution, right? So when someone's afraid, you perceive that it's called, it's called mirroring, right? You naturally mirror the opposite energy to them, which is groundedness, or, or peace, right? You start emanating peace in your aura. And by doing that, you start to depolarize their fear. They feel that you're at ease with the present moment and you're at peace. And so they feel more trusting. Sometimes I feel like it can trigger them more though. Sometimes like if you're ever in a, in a debate with like an NPC and then they say something about like the mainstream, mainstream belief and like, you just don't fall for it. You're just there calm and, and, and grounding because they can't trigger you. Sometimes it get like get reactive. And most of the time I agree with you, but sometimes mm -hmm. it, it's interesting that 
you can be peaceful and they get frustrated because they're not, they're trying to trigger you, but you're not getting triggered. Yeah. They're like, ah. in a sense, like any kind of debate or argument is already mimicking the same energy as them. Like if you're trying to prove them wrong or something, so it's going to automatically trigger them. What I found is if you're truly at peace, which means I have no interest in convincing you of something, then you're more than happy to let somebody be right. Cause you're like, I can't, I can't change their mind. Even if I wanted to, they have to want to change their own mind, right? They have to get sick and tired of their own belief to be willing to get rid of it. So what the hell am I going to do to change their mind? So they're like, no, it's not that way. It's this way. You're like, cool. (laughs) I have no interest in changing your mind. If you are open, then let's have the conversation. If you're not open, then we're not having the conversation. I mean, that's what groundedness would mirror to somebody who needs to have a fight, have an argument. You would, you would immediately mirror the energy of, I have no interest in a fight. You can be right if you want. And it's like, how can you have a fight when there's only one party involved? Yeah. You know, you need two people to have a true fight. Yeah. I'm sure it's also useful in, in romantic relationships. So you mentioned earlier, you have a a wife. How do you, how do you go about that in your own communication? Like, cause most disputes are marital or, or mm-hmm. relationship disputes. Like in my experience, you can, it's pretty easy to, you, each party has a choice to turn a conversation to an argument. So how do you go about, how yeah. do you and your experience go about polarizing or, or intense subject matter conversations with a romantic partner and not let it devolve into a argument where both your inner childs are you know, yelling at each other? Yeah. Well, this is an ongoing practice in my life. My my marriage, my relationship with my wife is the greatest spiritual catalyst I have because to truly foster a intimate, safe, loving partnership requires all of you to be available. You know, if you're holding, if you're withholding any part of yourself, it's going to create a conflict somewhere and vice versa. And so my relationship and all relationships I've had, but especially my current one have really taught me how to be fully available to somebody. And what that looks like for me is um, being much more interested in listening to my partner than telling or you know expressing my point of view is let me always first listen and make sure that my partner feels heard and not rejected. Even if we disagree, I can make you feel accepted first. You know? And that's what most, where most conflicts happen, I think, is that if there's a disagreement and there's always going to be disagreements, right? Uh, because we're identified with our ego, with our opinions, then a disagreement has to be a rejection of you and your opinion. Cause I can't be right. And you be right. Only one of us can be right. So now we're in a fight to find out who's right. And love doesn't fight and love doesn't need to be right. Love wants to find harmony and balance. And so love also knows that there's truth in every perspective, it's the only reason anyone believes anything. Even uh, the, the radical left cult in our society that believes that there's a million genders and that men can get pregnant, all these things that are clearly abject denials of reality. Even that level of insanity and cultism, there's some truth to it. And that little bit of truth they're clinging to is being blown up to this wild, crazy perspective But if I can't get to the core of what that person is really believing and affirm it, say, I see why you believe that there's not just two genders because there's a spectrum of gender, right? There's everyone is on a different part of the spectrum of masculine or feminine. I happen to be a more masculine oriented man, but I have friends that are more feminine oriented men. And like, that's beautiful to have that dichotomy where 
masculine and feminine can have unique balances in everybody. So to that extent, yeah, you're right. Gender's fluid. But if we blow that up to literalism, then we create a new religion and a new cult. Everything's dogma now where we can't even acknowledge who's a biological male and that's insanity, right? So I have to begin by finding where someone's perspective is true for them and saying, I see you there. And I affirm that what you're seeing is, is right, but let me give you this perspective. And in that sense, we're not conflicting anymore. We're not fighting anymore. We're conversing and we're trying to see one another's perspectives. And that's been an admittedly difficult thing for me to do in conflict, but that's what's taught me how to do this, right? Is through my failures in this area of saying, no, this is what is true in reality. We need to see it and agree on it together. And if someone's in a perspective of fear, they're bunkered down in a fearful perspective, I can't force them to see something they're afraid of seeing. So I have to instead, like a child, get down to their level and say, I see you, it's okay. Like I can meet you here. And over time, maybe we can get back to the uh, full standing position together and be standing in the truth again. So it's, it's, a, it's a very like challenging spiritual catalyst to be in a conscious partnership because every little aspect of you that needs to be right, that likes to fight and prove itself, like all of it will come out and that will force you, if you want to keep your relationship at least, to learn gentleness and kindness and openness, uh, which are just immutable and invaluable spiritual qualities. Yeah, it's just, it's tough because it's in those moments, you're like, how can the person I love the most not accept truth? It's yeah. like, you, you see them as like, I, for me, I struggle with, um, I've gotten better at it, but it's probably the thing, one of the things I struggle with the most is, is I start judging at that point where it's like, how can yeah. this person not see You're the so truth? blind. It's like, this. for example, the gender, it's like the perfect example of like truth. Okay, if they can't accept the sex as male or female, like, hard for me not to judge them right because it's just it's just the truth but what you're saying is correct and it's one of the hardest tasks i think is if you perceive something to be true and it is true your your whole body knows it and someone you love can't see it it's a tough experience it's always that's been that's the experience for me at especially during the holidays right on the christmas table Mm -hmm. i know something to be true i say it everyone's like oh what how could you ever say that you're crazy (laughs) it's like but it's true and then i get mad at them and it just like this whole thing so it's a it's a useful, useful perspective yeah, it's it's pain, man, that, that causes these warped perspectives of things. You cannot look at somebody who's um, waving the flag of the radical left cult in our society and not see a deeply wounded, hurting person. I mean, I can't. Yeah. I only see hurting people when I look at them. And so if you see a hurting person, there's a natural response in you to bring help and healing rather than more conflict and more pain. And that's what what does bring a little bit of sorrow to me when I see the way that people in the truther movement or whatever you want to call it, um, lobbying so much hate and judgment at those people who believe Mm -hmm. these crazy things and are indoctrinating our children. Like, yes, I get it. I see all those same things, but getting angry at them and hating them is not the answer. Um, We need to be able to have conversations with each other. And it's like, I promise you that 90% of these people who are trying to indoctrinate children with this stuff. If you could, if, if people could sit down with them, if we collectively could sit together and hear their perspective, hear why they believe these things and say, I understand, I accept you and what you believe and you're fully allowed to believe that. I just want you to understand my perspective that I don't want anybody telling my children anything about sexuality, straight, gay, trans, it does not matter to me. My children's sexuality is my business only. 
And I'm sure you would feel the same way about your own children. If you had children that you wanted to raise them to be gay and trans, wouldn't you get upset if I was trying to force them to be straight when they go to school? Of course, right? So let's just like have this understanding with each other and we can both love each other where we're at. Like 90% of them would understand you. Be like, yeah, I get that. It's they don't because we're like, you're evil, F you. And they're like, no, you're evil, F you. And now we're just worlds apart from each other. So it's, it's the fighting, it's the judging, it's the hating that really is causing all the problems but, in our that, society. That, that is the demonic evil agenda, is the creation of the disputes, right? You got it's it. Like, it's divide and conquer, right? It's, like, you that's got what, it. it's not even the, the radical left that's reacting, that's being... It's on the right, it's on the left, I mean, it's more everywhere. so it's like it's the reaction to that and then creates right. the, the disputes that we're always in these, these arguments. Right. That's like the ultimate agenda is to have all of us stuck in these useless debates over nonsense, really. Useless things. So it's, Create conflict is the most important thing for the negative path to control the population. Cause you said divide and conquer a united population is impossible to control. Yeah. And America was once like that, right? Very, very yeah. united. And we had a lot of freedom and a booming economy back then. And not that we didn't have problems back then, but like as a society, there was great abundance in our society. There was a very, very little poor class and a huge middle class and a much smaller elite wealthy class. And now what's happened? Everything is bifurcated. There's an enormous poverty class and a small handful of um, unimaginably wealthy people and nothing in between, a chasm in between. And that's because we've been polarized like that through these, you know, these elites, banking elites, political elites, people with lots of wealth and power who know how to control populations. It's honestly, I hate to say this, it's not that difficult. Humans are no different than a dog or an animal. You can like train to have certain mm -hmm. behaviors, a little bit more complex, but not that much more complex. It's all the same things. It's like, you want this? Yeah, you want this? Come get it. And most humans are going to run after it. Um, oh, they're bad. They're bad. You hate them, right? Enemy, enemy. Yeah, cool. And they're going to go fight that person. This is all that they do. So like the awakening of consciousness is the only solution to the control and the corruption on our planet. Because it's, it's all, again, a byproduct of our ignorance of truth and unity. And so if we wake up and become united, the, the, the negative path has no power. Because as we said in the beginning, there, there aren't two powers. The negative path has to steal and borrow all the power it has from the light. So they need, they need our ignorance, right? They need our cooperation with them. And if we don't cooperate with evil, evil can't do anything. Yeah, a question I often ask myself and... It's a hard question to answer. So I'm curious to have, if you even have an answer, but if we live in this polar plane, whether it has to be positive or negative polarity, can we let the negative polarity exist without causing the evil it does? Like, is that a naive thing to believe that we can like mm. conquer the negative, right? Like what, to what level can the negative play out without causing so much harm to then release the valid rules we need in the simulation? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how, how yeah. can, What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is that in a sense, the negative is always in us because we've transcended it. So we never lose it in that sense. Because <clears throat> as you're saying, like it is true that we need the negative, we need the darkness to really comprehend the light and to enter the light. So it's not that we kick it off our planet and get rid of it forever. It's that we integrate it and transcend it. Because again, it's all due to the ignorance of truth. So when we master our own ignorance, then we've learned all those lessons, we've gained all that wisdom, and we take it with us forward. And all throughout the universe, there is the negative polarity happening. I think the law of one says about 10% of all planets in the universe 
wind up polarizing negative, whereas 90% wind up polarizing positive. So even if it's not on our planet, it is out there. And uh, in the fourth density, the law of one says that what, what civilizations do once they reach the fourth density, which would be like an enlightened civilization, is that our, our greatest desire and interest and curiosity is how can we go be of service to, to others in the universe? Because we see our brothers and sisters are out there everywhere in the stars, and some of them are sh- struggling greatly and suffering greatly. So let's go find other third density planets like ours used to be, who are struggling like we used to struggle, and let's help them out. And coincidentally, that's what's happening on our planet right now with these ETs Can you that are here. That, please? Yeah. yeah. I, I believe you. I'm just, I'm just want to hear about it from your perspective. So like, first, like, how did you come to that realization first? How did you realize, oh shit, ETs are, are trying to improve our situation here? How did you discover that yeah. firstly? And then to what extent are they doing that? How are they showing up? So two things. One is the the teachings that are laid out in the law of one that I've mentioned so many times. And two is our direct experience of this phenomenon in reality perfectly coincide. Meaning, yeah, everything that's in the law of one is a hypothesis, let's say. We don't know for sure that it's true because we're not at that place yet to be living from those truths yet. But the law of one says, hey, this is the way that it is. And so we can only measure that uh, statement or those... Um, those conjectures. So the law of one came from ETs? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We can only measure that assessment against our direct experience and say, well, does that line up with what we see now? And the answer is a resounding yes. And so that, that question is called the Fermi paradox, right? Have you heard this? No. The Fermi paradox is what scientists call the question of if there is life in the universe, and according to the universe we observe with trillions of habitable planets all around us, why don't we see aliens everywhere, right? It's like having a fish in the ocean, but you're the only fish and there's no other fish. How can that be? We've got to, there's got to be other fish. Why don't we see them? And the law of one gives amazingly satisfying answers to that question. And it's through this understanding of positive, negative polarity. So our planet, third density, is the, is the, the density where we're still choosing what polarity we want to be individually and collectively. So collectively, as a planet, 51% or more of us have to consciously choose the path of love and unity. And at that point, we become officially positively polarized, and it increases from there. To become negatively polarized, 95% or more of our population must actively choose the path of separation to shut off the heart, to feel no love for anyone, to be completely self-centered. And so that's obviously a really high standard, 95%. But that's because the negative path is not harmonious, as is the positive path. It's a path of great disharmony and entropy and conflict. So it takes a lot stronger polarization to graduate. So anyway, every ET in the universe is only one of those two polarities. And that's the first mistake we make is that we project our consciousness onto ETs and say, well, they must be just like us. And like in ways they are, but they're not in the choosing anymore. Any ET that we're seeing in our skies, their civilization chose their polarity eons ago. So they're fully positively polarized, meaning they live and abide in the constant there, awareness of oneness. Not, is there a fully negative polarized mm-hmm. ETs that come here as well? Um, 
yes and no. So the law of one says the reason that negative ETs don't show up on our planet to openly try and enslave us is because they would if they could. And the whole universe would be negatively polarized in a short matter of time. So what the positive polarity does, and in a loose sense, the positive polarity of consciousness is much more powerful than the negative uh, in the same way that light is much more powerful than darkness. But the positive path is benevolent and merciful and kind. So it doesn't want to stomp out the negative path in the way that the negative path wants to stomp out the light. It says there's a place in our universe for the negative. So we need to allow those beings to be negative, but we can't allow them to just run unfettered across the universe and conquer every planet in sight or the whole universe will be negative. So to keep the natural balance of things, let's protect developing planets. So it's like a mother hen that protects her eggs or something. Positive ETs protect developing planets like ours with something they call the quarantine. And this sounds, this might sound really woo-woo and metaphysical, go, but go for it, bro. basically all they're doing is they encase our planet with a kind of shield of loving energy, uh, loving vibration that negative ETs, they have to stay as far away from love as possible because love is incredibly depolarizing to negative energy. And negative polarization is really hard to gain in the universe. You have to enslave people. You have to control them. You have to take power over them. And that's not easy to do. So a negative being who's gained a lot of negative charge isn't going to risk losing a bunch of it from being around loving beings, right? They stay as far away from loving beings as possible to keep their negativity. So if these positive beings encase third density planets with a charge of love, no negative ETs can come through it. So you don't, you're not under... You know, under the belief that there's some thinkers in this space who believe that negative ETs are the ones who control this this society. You're not under that impression. No, there's room for that because okay. although they can't come here physically, they can send thought forms and they can telepathically communicate, which they certainly do. Okay, how so? Um, so in thought, you can be anywhere at any time, right? Thought, uh, the universe is quantum, meaning there's really no different locations. It's just that it's all mental. So if you want to speak to someone anywhere in the universe, these higher density beings, that's as easy as walking down the street for them. You know what I mean? They live in that space of timeless, eternal consciousness. So they can easily send thought forms to people. And they definitely do, in my opinion, um, to those elites of our planet who are trying to take control. The, pa- the negative path is the path of um, master and disciple. Just like on Star Wars. It's literally just like Star Wars where a great negative polarized master will have minions or servants that serve under it. And to to enslave or to be enslaved is negatively polarizing. So both are benefiting from the relationship, both the master and the disciple. But the law of one says at a certain point, every disciple will get to the point where they try to overthrow their master. Just like in Star Wars, uh, I believe it's Darth Maul. Uh, Qui-Gon Jinn tells Obi-Wan that long ago, Darth Maul killed his own master to become his own master. Uh, That's classic negative polarity. So if the disciple fails, the master will banish it and have to go find a new master to serve and start all over again. So this is the interplay on the negative. It's a pecking order. It's a pyramid always. And you're always climbing up the ladder. So they're not, they can't come here physically or they would, but they can come here psychically. and project, project here? No, like in thought, they can, they can, people can channel negative ETs just like they can channel positive ETs. 
Um, so until our planet chooses a polarity, it's going to be protected by the quarantine. And it's really no different than like, imagine our scientists, right? Who go to the Serengeti to film a documentary on zebras or lions. They don't go sprinting into the herd of zebras, taking pictures and filming, or they would freak them out and the zebras are going to run away, right? So they observe from a distance so that the zebras feel safe. But at a certain point, the scientists have to acclimate the zebras to their presence and kind of prove to them that we're safe. We're not predators. We're not here to harm you. And after a while, the zebras stop running away from the cameraman and they just, whatever, they ignore them. Well, humanity is in that very same acclimation phase with positive ETs because positive ETs, the positive polarity does not infringe on free will. Infringing on free will is the negative polarity and that's how they gain charge. But you gain charge on the positive polarity by honoring free will and helping and serving people in that way. So positive ETs also can't just come openly amongst us and, and give us technology because we have tons of world religions, right? That would, it would contradict a lot of belief systems. It would scare people and freak people out. It would force people to question their religion and stuff. And they see that as an infringement of our free will. If these people want to be Islamic, Judaistic, Christian, like we allow that. We're not going to go ruin their religions. That's infringement. So like we have a lot of evolving to do before we're able to, I think, communicate openly with ETs. Do you but, have the ability to communicate? I mean, we all do. Like, do you ever channel them or do you, is, it, is it just through education or reading you've... Yeah, just through, okay. just in my own reading. Um, I've tried channeling a little bit and have had some, what felt like some success, but I'm really just more interested in... Uh, understanding the metaphysics that are happening here because one of my theories is that positive ETs are in communication with our governments because our governments, they're not religious. They, they want to know what's true and they want to control everything. And we've had many, many disclosures at this point, even in Congress, right? That they've admitted like, yeah, we've had extraterrestrial crafts and we've even recovered extraterrestrial beings um, long, long ago, and we've been keeping this a secret from the public, um, somebody recently disclosed that our government has been in communication with extraterrestrial civilizations for quite some time. And here's my theory, just understanding the nature of positive ETs, is that they want to be of service to our planet, but they need us to acknowledge them openly and say, yes, we see you, you're welcome here, let's have relationship. And then they would come amongst us because now they have our free will involved. But they can't do that yet because we're not doing that yet. Most people are afraid of them still. Most people aren't even sure if they're benevolent or malevolent, right? So we've got a ways to go. They need to keep acclimating us, mm -hmm. but our government acknowledges them. Do you believe the government can use them to exert control or a one-world government? That's a fear I go into, right? That they, that they may be disclosing them in an effort to create some kind of, this is out there. But oh, so for sure. It's yeah. going to hologram to be like, oh, we all need a one-world uh, globalist control mm -hmm. so we can fight the aliens. I think for sure, knowing knowing the negative path, they're going to use everything possible as a control weapon, which is what they do. Yeah. So they'll stage a fake alien invasion at some point, I'm sure. Uh, maybe they just did that in Miami. I don't know. But <laughs> that, uh, that was fishy. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. I think the CIA has all kinds of technology that they, they always test run things before they do a global um, rollout of it. We saw that with COVID with, was it Event 201? Where they had that fake simulation of COVID like just a few months before the pandemic like to the T, moment by moment, exactly the way the pandemic played out. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. bro. Event 201. That's conspiracy 101, bro. 
But it's not because it happened. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's like if you but are, I get it. are somewhat aware, you know, you've, you've, you've seen yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Well, cons- conspiracy is, in a sense, the most truthful thing that ever happens on our planet. Yeah. Because a conspiracy means two or more people conspiring together to do harm to others for their own benefit. Yeah, yeah. That happens every second of our existence on this planet. There's people right now actively plotting how they can take control and power away from people to give to themselves. This is what it means to be human at this point. There's nothing you know, all business fake about business around yes. that concept. Yeah. So I mean conspiracy is the nature of being human yep. in that sense. Um, but getting back to the question is my theory is that these positive ETs have definitely been communicating with our government for a long time and they've been trying to bargain with them, but our government's been not taking the deal they're being offered. And I think the deal is we will give you every technology you need to have a utopian society, all people well-fed, no poverty at all, no disease at all. We will give you free energy technology, everything you need to have a beautiful, harmonious planet where all beings are equal. All you have to do is get rid of all your nuclear weapons and uh, stop enslaving your people type of thing, right? And for sure, our government's like, no, we're not taking that deal. We like our power. We like our control. And so the ETs have to be like, okay, we're not going to force you to do this, but this is our ongoing offer. If you want our amazing technology, how to travel to the stars, how to have free energy, how to heal any sickness or illness, we'll gladly give it to you, but you got to give us your nukes. And the government's like, nope, we like our disease. We like our control. It gives us lots of power. And so that's just where we're at. But at a certain point, humanity will evolve enough where our government will take that deal. And then these ETs will begin to give us technology that will almost overnight turn us into a completely different civilization. Do the ETs ever intervene? Like if something, if something bad is about to happen, like someone's like, I'm going to drop a nuke. And they're like, nope. Is there ever like a, like some kind of block off the backboard when someone's about to do something evil? <laughs> like a LeBron. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, we saw this in uh, one of the congressional hearings on the UAP force was um, one of the military generals was uh, discussing what he saw with his own eyes, which was, um, I don't remember when this was. It might've been in the eighties or something when they were testing nukes during the cold war or something, but um, they sent a nuke up and a craft appeared and multiple military personnel described it the same way. They said it appeared below the, the nuclear warhead, like a little bit off to the side of it. And it shot a laser up from the bottom. And then it appeared on the side, shot a laser from the side, appeared on the top, shot a laser from the top, appeared on the right, shot a laser from the right, and then the nuclear warhead was deactivated. And then I, it just I didn't vanished. Know this. Well, you didn't know this? No, really. Wow. And this has happened multiple times, apparently, where they're trying to test nukes out and some craft appears. And, and it's like their way of saying, don't do this. Kind of like if a baby grabbed a knife, you'd be like, no, no. And you'd take the knife, you know? It's like, you don't know what you're playing with. We're not going to let you do this because number one, they want to honor free will. And it's like, what percentage of humanity's free will is involved with nukes? 0.001%. Mm-hmm. And it's just the people in power who want to yep. do this and want to build these bombs. All, the rest of us are like, stop. We don't want to plan it with nukes. Stop it, you know? And so the ETs know that because they, they're always reading the collective consciousness. And they're like, hey, not only would this create, if they, like we did to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, if they unleash these weapons... Hundreds of thousands of people are going to die unfairly. That's an infringement of free will. And 
These people don't even want these nukes here. It's just this tiny handful of powerful people doing this. So because we have more of the free will of these people on our side, we're going to stop these nukes. Mm. So like they're always operating in the boundaries of free will and they won't go beyond it. Um, but that is their goal is to serve and help our planet. And they're doing so in whatever ways they possibly can, I think. I'm going to close this question. I think it's an important one is what you're discussing is perceived by the, by the many as like lunacy, being crazy, being insane. What did it take internally for you to fully have no problem speaking this with f- full openness? I think it's that that's the stage most of us, because most of us, to some extent, maybe not the alien stuff, but most of us to some extent have a moral compass where we don't agree with gender stuff, we don't agree with certain mm-hmm. agendas, but we're too afraid to speak it because we fear judgment. So what did it take in you to be so outspoken and willing to say whatever you want without any fear? And how can someone follow that blueprint to get to that place themselves? And is it freeing to be in that space? Mm-hmm. Great questions. Um, I haven't I haven't thought about this question before, but I think it just begins with not caring what people think anymore. Um, when you see how many people are so afraid of falling outside of public opinion, it's um, it's a very weak state of mind to live from, to be afraid of public opinion of yourself and to, to need to always fall in line with the status quo thought. Um, it's kind of cringy to me, actually. So when, when you see it that way, it's not hard to speak your mind anymore. Um, and I also, from another perspective, um, kind of think similarly if people hear me talking about uh, theorizing, and I'm not saying I know all this for certain. I'm saying these are my theories. This is the way I think it works because if these theories are true, it completely validates what we're seeing. You know, they can't come, they're not coming openly because they can't because it would energetically depolarize them and uh, they would lose all the charge that they've gained if they just violated our free will. So these things add up. So it seems like they're true, but we'll find out as time goes on. So I'm not attached to any of this. But it's, it's important to have speculation and have theories so that we can continue evolving in our thinking because otherwise we're going to keep doing the same dumb stuff we've been doing and getting the same dumb results. So for people to be like so hyper-skeptical that they're not even willing to question something that's outside of their paradigm, to me is a kind of stupidity or a kind of lack of intelligence. And I don't want to fall into that myself anymore. So when you see that the universe is so much more complex and infinite than you possibly could have imagined, then it, it actually feels less intelligent to be skeptical and it feels more intelligent to be radically open. And that openness is just, I don't know. It's not, I know for sure. And that's dumb and wrong. That's what skepticism tends to be is skepticism should be open-mindedness, but it doesn't come across that way in our society. Skepticism is, I know for sure that that's wrong. I, I know for sure that that's not true. And whenever you think you know, you're always wrong in some way because you can't know anything for sure. So like, it's just basic intelligence to me to be open to the infinity, the infinitude of our universe and say, yeah, that's totally possible. Um, But if I'm getting hunkered down on an opinion of, I know for sure it's this way, or I know for sure it's not that way, both of those are not intelligent uh, uh, positions to hold for me. So I'm not afraid of public opinion anymore. If people disagree with me, I, I left that behind when I left Christianity and got massively, you know, criticized by all my friends and family for that. So I kind of got through that phase already, but it's now more so just seeing what true intelligence looks like is to be very, very open and be willing to question things that are out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, it's been my 
my path to it. My, my, my perspective is, I think it's been a theme of this podcast, is that what's true, if I think it's true, it's my moral duty to say it, right? Like, and also it's like, the feeling I, I dread the most is looking in the mirror and seeing a coward. Right. And I am a coward if I don't say what I think or I don't speak the truth. So it comes down to that. But thank you so much for <clears throat> coming on. And I, I learned a lot this podcast and I, I respect your, your, your balls and, and, and saying all this stuff with no, no fear. Cause I, anyone I've had, you probably said the most without any fear. So I appreciate it. Nice man. Thank well, you, thank man. you for having me brother. It's of been course, a pleasure. Of course, man. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.